as I was learning these stories and traveling across the country and talking to people, I realized that all of the things I was learning really boiled down to, as we we're mentioning, this the importance of the idea of belonging and the necessity of schools nurturing a strong sense of belonging. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Before we introduce this episode's guest, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on what has been a really exciting time for our community. Last week, we hosted our first ever Educator Summit in Dallas, Texas. While I was unfortunately unable to attend the event, it was great to hear from so many of the 150 participants and presenters from all around the country who came together to share the work that they are doing to support multilingual learners. While they represented highly diverse districts with distinct challenges and needs, they all share the common goal of helping all students reach their highest aspirations. For those of you who joined us, thank you, and I'll see you at next year's summit for sure. For those of you who did not, we hope to see you at future summits. More on that later. The learning and networking opportunities will continue in just a few weeks when we kick off our third annual impact event. This free virtual event is open to anyone who wants to learn more about supporting multilingual learners, and it features some of the most well-respected experts in the field. Impact began in 2020 in an effort to provide educators with high-quality learning opportunities in the midst of the pandemic. It has grown every year since, and we are excited to bring it back in 2022. Just some of our guests, I'll mention three for now, Dr. Carol Selva, Dr. Sonia Soltero, and our friend Emily Francis are just three of the eight or nine presenters that you'll hear from during Impact. To learn more and register for sessions, please visit our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. And if you happen to be listening to this episode after December 8th, don't worry, all sessions are recorded and will be available on our community for your listening and watching purposes later. Okay, on to this week's episode. About three years ago, I received this email from a teacher in Massachusetts. Dear Elevation, I am a longtime teacher of immigrant students and also a writer. For the last four years, I've taught ELL history and social studies to students from 30 countries in a large urban public high school in Massachusetts. I am currently an Emerson Collective Fellow, and over the next year, I am setting out to begin writing my third book, Exploring Innovations in Teaching to Best Support Immigrant Origin Students Around the Country. I had come across your organization, and I was hoping if I could talk with someone on your team to learn more about what you do. Now, if you've listened to the Highest Aspirations podcast for a while and you know a little bit about what we do, it will come as no surprise that I was intrigued. Between then and now, this longtime teacher and writer has managed to write a new book she has appropriately titled Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education. Her name is Jessica Lander, and I was thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss her work. Here are some of the questions we cover in our conversation. What are the essential elements of success for learning communities to support immigrant students? How can incorporating storytelling into classrooms be used to build empathy and understanding for both students and educators? What are some examples of innovative programs or collaborative approaches that are successfully improving outcomes for newcomers and immigrant students? We discuss these questions and much more with Jessica Lander. 
Jessica is an award-winning teacher, writer, and author. She teaches history and civics to recent immigrant students in a Massachusetts public high school and has won numerous awards for her teaching, including being named a top 50 finalist for the Global Teacher Prize in 2021, presented by the Varkey Foundation, and being named a Massachusetts Teacher of the Year finalist in 2022, presented by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Jessica writes frequently about education policy and teaching. She is the author of Making Americans, Stories of Historic Struggles, New Ideas, and Inspiration in Immigrant Education, a co-author of Powerful Partnerships, A Teacher's Guide to Engaging Families for Student Success, and the author of Driving Backwards. To add to all this, Jessica is incredibly humble and very generous with her time, and we appreciate her appearing on our Highest Aspirations podcast. Without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Jessica Lander. Jessica Lander, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today with you. Yeah, I'm excited too. And you just mentioned before we were talking about flexibility and how it's an art form uh, in teaching. And uh, it's an art form for this, this podcast as well, because we've been trying to do this for a while. And we actually connected... When was that when we first connected? A couple of years ago when you were first embarking on this journey. Indeed. It was back in 2019, right when I was setting out to write this book. And uh, I think I, I reached out to you and said, hey, I'm a teacher. I'm starting this book on immigrant education. Would you be willing to talk to me? And you were so generous in hopping on the phone and chatting with me just as I was beginning to figure out what this book was going to look like. So thank you again for taking that time three years ago. Oh, thank you. I was really flattered by that invitation to talk about whatever I knew, and hopefully it was helpful in some way. And I'm hoping that this will be even more helpful in getting the word out because um, I have read the book and I really liked it. And I'm excited to talk about it and not only the book, but some of the themes that go along with it. So let's start with a little bit of background. Um, You've been a teacher for over 10 years. Um, You've always worked with newcomers. That is more than a full-time job, especially now, and especially over the last three years or so. So what in the world led you on this journey to set out and 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 write a book on the topic? Uh, well, so many things. So um, yes, I've been a teacher for the last 10 years. And for the since 2015, I've had the honor of working at Lowell High School in Lowell, Massachusetts, um, being a civics and um, history teacher for all recent immigrant and refugee students from about 30 different countries. And they are absolutely amazing young people. And it's really them that has inspired this book um, and the work we did together for years, even before the idea of the book um, blossomed out of the work we did together. So uh, I'll just share a, a few things from my classroom and ways that my students inspire me. Um, we just wrapped up our unit on immigration, I'm still teaching in the classroom. Um, I'm speaking to you literally having just drone home, driven home from teaching. Um, and so we've just wrapped up our unit on immigration and uh, we're studying the history of immigrants who came here more than a hundred years ago. But of course, to fully understand and study the history of immigration in this country, we also have to study my own students' history mm-hmm. because they are of course experts. And so we conclude this unit by including a study of their history, their stories, their traditions. And we do that through writing a cookbook. And so my students set out to choose a favorite family recipe. They called up moms and dads. They FaceTimed grandfathers in Brazil and uh, texted aunts in Cambodia. 
And we got these recipes, we translated them uh, into English and also into language that others can understand. So like cook until done, what does that mean? Um, and then they set about writing stories of their food, their tradition, their memories, and their migrations here so that we can learn from them. They'll then in uh, next week, at the end of next week, they are going to cook their foods and bring them in so we can all try them together. And then we're gonna publish a cookbook so that our community can learn from them. Mm -hmm. We do this, we're gonna write op-eds in a few weeks where my students are gonna tackle issues they care about. Um, and then we're gonna publish some of those in the local newspaper. We're gonna tackle a community uh, civics project in the spring, and I can talk more about that later, um, where my whole class is gonna come together to work together on an issue they care about. All this is to say that the things my students do in our classroom are amazing and the ways they're impacting their community are incredible and so deeply powerful. And from working with them over so many years, it really got me thinking about how do we better support our students? Um, how do we make schools that are really investing in their amazing strengths, supporting them in all the ways that they can then go on and thrive both in school and outside of school. And that was really the impetus for me to set out to write this book. And I um, was able to um, get a, a fellowship from the Emerson Collective, who were incredibly mm -hmm. generous, to take a one-year leave from teaching and travel across the country to visit schools, to talk to people at the heart of historical cases, and to sit down with my own students, um, to think about how together we reimagine immigrant education. Uh, but the whole idea for it comes from just my remarkable students who I am working with every single day, who inspire me and make me want to do my part in creating schools that better support them and help them thrive. I'm really glad we started with that question and that introduction. That was great. I mean, it gives us so much context. And if I may, I'm going to take two things out of there. There were a lot of things that you just said that are really, really important. But one thing immediately um, came out to me, and that was you said the work that we do together, our students and I. I think that's so powerful. And that is the shift that we're, I think, seeing more of and that we need to make sure that we're always thinking about it because we are working together. Um, with our students and leveraging their assets. And we talk about taking an asset-based approach all the time. What better way to do that than to do the leading to my second thing that I wanted to bring up is when you start to talk about the work you're doing um, with, with the cookbook and the community later, I immediately started to think about the book that Karen Mapp wrote. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Dr. Karen Mapp from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Beyond the Bake Sale. It's like the classic kind of family engagement book. What a great example of going beyond the bake sale, right? Like, um, it's a slippery slope with food. Everybody loves food, but it can be very um, sort of surface level, right? What you're doing, take something that's precious to everybody and really make it be something that's not only showcased in the school and the students, but also in the community. So th those were two really, I mean, I just, I just really appreciate you kind of opening that way. And I, we're going to kind of stay on that kind of food topic because um, my next question for you is you open the book with this really, one, and by the way, I'm familiar with Lowell High School. I don't know if I told you this, but I taught at Lynn. I started my career at Lynn at classical high school. Similar demographic, very similar kind of history in terms of those cities. Um, and I, you know, grew up in Massachusetts, so I'm, I'm well aware. Um, and you you open your book with this wonderful anecdote uh, about the lunches that you shared at Lowell High School in Massachusetts um, with students from around the world. What's really struck me about that is that 
mo- probably most teachers, even those who work in highly diverse schools, like the one that you work at, don't really get that opportunity. And myself included. I mean, there were occasions when I had that opportunity and it always seemed like so great. But what did it teach you? And I guess, how can we like scale that kind of experience? Um, so I, it's wonderful that you um, you have so many connections to the area too um, with Lynn. And uh, so you know Lowell well. And I think so that the book opens right with um, my student, Wilson, um, who is uh, new to the school and new to the state and doesn't feel like he belongs and doesn't have friends. And so he like sheepishly comes into my class and says, can I eat lunch with you? And that starts a a daily routine of us eating lunch together. And he is so deeply curious. And we start because I have lunch and I'm uh, using chopsticks every day. He asks about chopsticks and that leads into a discussion of how much he loves all things Japanese, and he's teaching himself katakana and hiragana. And then slowly other students start to come too. And it's because of Wilson, I credit Wilson for this. Um, and I'll get back to that in a second. And um, as I write about in the intro, and you just talked about that the classroom slowly fills with students from all over the world. And we're sharing lunch together. It's not class time. It's in between space and kids are eating and talking and asking questions about history and doing homework. And it, it's, it was such a magical, is such a magical time, but that year particularly was so beautiful for so many reasons. And I, I think for me, what it comes down to is it was a community that was co-created. And that comes back to what you said before of the, the work we're doing together, that this was a community that was created together with Wilson mm-hmm. and me and Poe and all of his classmates. Um, and it was the trust that was built together that made the space a place where students felt comfortable, they felt safe, um, they felt a sense of belonging um, and that this is where they wanted to come. And that is something I credit to my students um, that they were co-creating that space with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really important um, and powerful thing for me as a teacher to see and watch them create that together. Um, and also a reminder to me of how do we create spaces like that in all areas of our school. Right. Um, and so for me, what does it teach me? It teaches me about the power of what happens when those spaces are created um, from the, the small things of watching young people try each other's foods for the first time and that curiosity and that excitement. So when Poe brings in tiny spicy fishes, um, uh, everyone's sort of excited and a little scared to try them, but they're trying them. And then one of my students from Lebanon brings in baklava and um, Nia is bringing in soups from Vietnam. And that curiosity and that excitement and that power of learning from just all of the amazing cultures and histories and traditions in that classroom, um, what can happen when you create those spaces and when students create that spaces. And then to the friendships that develop out of that, watching Mm. those friendships that traverse um, countries that traverse around the globe just in one classroom and then how students are learning and how that builds into the classwork we do as students take on things like the cookbook together or action civics projects where they're collaborating together. Um, But it starts with 
trust and it starts with friendships that are formed and how do we build those friendships? And so I think the, the things that I learned from that was one that it's co-created, that it is something that um, my students helped make that space where they felt comfortable, they felt um, welcome and it felt welcoming for each other. And then from that, that has so many possibilities for friendships, for deepening understandings of so many histories and traditions and um, ways of thinking that are important for all of our students. Um, and then from that too, how does that spill over into the academic work we do and sure. the work we do outside? Um, and so how do we scale that? is how do we make sure that our, our students feel um, that, that sense of security, that sense of welcome, that sense that their identities are celebrated in our, our classrooms and our communities so that they are eager to share and want to share and want to learn from each other. And I think a lot of the rest will then follow um, because they will be then co-creating those spaces with us. Um, and I think just as a, a plug, since you mentioned her before, um, Karen Mapp is just amazing. Um, so I, I'm so glad you just highlighted her work in her book. I, um, I mean, she's such a leader in mm -hmm. family engagement and had the honor of uh, actually co-authoring a book with her and veteran teacher Eileen Carver, um, building on her work, um, Powerful Partnerships. And um, this book we just wrote, uh, Powerful Partnerships, back in uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, looking at family engagement and family engagement is a big part of this as well. Of yeah. how to honor and respect and collaborate with families to create these spaces. Um, because that's a huge part too, of making sure that our kids feel a sense of belonging in our classrooms and our schools. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, so much there to dissect. And I think it'll, it'll go right into kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is kind of the structure of the book. And we're noticing a theme here, which is this theme of belonging and co-creation and safe spaces, which are all um, either, you know, specific elements or parts of the elements of the book. So what I liked about, I liked a lot of things about the book, but one thing that I really liked is the structure of it. Um, you, you, you structured around what you call eight essential elements for success. I'm going to list them because I want people to know what they are. Um, and then I'm going to ask you a question that may be unfair. So, so the, 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 the themes are opportunities for new beginnings, Supportive communities, which we've talked a little bit about, assurance of security, which we've talked a little bit about as well, chances to dream, which I love, committed advocates, recognition of students' strengths and assets, something that I've mentioned that we've seen in many, many different ways. It's often a word that we use, asset-based approach, but people have this nebulous idea of what it actually is. Um, acceptance for who students are and where they are come from. I think we saw that a little bit in what you talked about, this community that you're creating in your classroom. The students are certainly recognizing that in each other. And finally, opportunities for students to develop their voice and valuing those voices. So here's my unfair question. We don't have time to talk about all of them. Um, I'm going to list them on the on the blog post that we put so people can see. There will obviously be a link to the book. I hope everybody reads it. Given our audience is mostly educators of multilingual learners, um, I'm going to ask you to choose one or two of those and talk about how they relate to the important work they're doing. And the more that you can kind of contextualize it and structure it to whatever's relevant and on your mind right now, um, that would be great. Excellent. Um, no, not not too scary a question at all. Um, so I, setting out to... Um, organize this book and organize these stories. Um, how did I choose these topics? So 
to back up for a second, and then I'll dive into one or two of these. Mm -hmm. um, I'll have to read the book to learn the rest of them. Um, there are three types of stories in the book. Um, and those stories are stories of the past, they're stories of the present, and they're stories of the personal. Um, and I, I thought setting out from the beginning that you needed these three types of stories to reimagine immigrant education. You needed to learn from past historical landmark Supreme Court cases and federal laws and movements that have transformed our schools and made them what they are today. You had to learn from, or I had to learn when I was setting out to write this book, I had to learn from um, amazing present day experiments across the country working with school, uh, immigrant students today. And what were they doing? Um, and then you also, or I also needed to listen to and learn from the personal, from my students to understand their experience of coming to this country and their experience of our schools. And so the book is organized in stories of the past, the present and the personal. And as I was learning these stories and traveling across the country and talking to people, I realized that all of the things I was learning really boiled down to, as you were mentioning this, the importance of the idea of belonging and the necessity of schools nurturing a strong sense of belonging. And so then it, to me, came out of that was, well, so what does that mean? Um, how do we understand belonging? What are the elements of belonging? And so that's how I got those eight essential elements from what I learned from people who were at the heart of these landmark cases and uh, laws, who are in the classroom today, who invited me into their classrooms across the country to learn from them and from my own students. Um, and those eight essential elements are drawn from what I learned from my many teachers across the country. Great combination um, of resources, by the way, that you had access to. Oh, it was a really, I mean, such a privilege to be able to learn from just such an a powerful breadth of people um, mm -hmm. and a really, really amazing individuals, many of whom courageously um, have done powerful work in the field and generously shared their stories in the book. Um, so I'll dive into just a, a few very briefly. Um, you asked for one or two. Um, you specifically talked about student strengths and um, the recognitions of student strengths in ASSA and how that connects to the work that educators are doing and educators who listen um, to, um, who will be listening to our conversation. So I, I think for our, our multilingual learners, for my immigrant origin students, and I hear this from them, that too often people equate immigrant students' English levels and English fluency with their intelligence. Mm -hmm. And this can, whether this done consciously or unconsciously, this can lead school systems to lower their expectations for immigrant students. And often our students pick up on this. And I know this because this is what my students tell me. Um, so, of course, that is that's, it's false. Um, our students bring tremendous strengths. Um, a, even if they can't express those ideas in English yet, they have so, so many strengths. Um, I mean, just to name a few, in journeying to this country, they've often become masters at negotiation, problem solving, and teamwork. Um, as immigrants, they have developed powerful skills as linguistic and cultural translators, particularly my teenage uh, students. They're often linguistic and cultural families uh, translators for their families every day. Um, they're looking at bills, they're looking at um, 
government documents. Um, they're helping their families. They carry a, just a huge breadth of knowledge and perspectives about the world that they've gained from traveling and living in different countries and cultures and experiencing different government systems. And they're, of course, are developing such huge wealths of perseverance and grit honed by learning in a new land. And so for me, thinking about how do we tap into and recognize and value and invest in our student strengths, it's about making sure we're doing this in our schools and that our students recognize that all of these strengths that they have are strengths. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think about one of my students who her first year, she described when I was uh, talking to her for the book, how she felt that she was working less hard than her um, American-born peers who were monolingual. Um, and yet this was a young woman who had mastered two languages, was mastering a third, was navigating a new country and culture and school, um, was learning a language while also learning academic content. And yet she somehow, our school, the school system had made her believe that she was working less hard. Um, mm. And like, how do we get uh, our, our schools and our communities to celebrate all those strengths? I mean, we think about terms like ESL, English as a second language, for one of the students I profile in the book, Robert, it would be ETL. It's English as a 10th language. For yeah, me. yeah. Um, and so that's just one example of how do we think about strengths in schools? How do we celebrate these strengths? How do we identify them in our schools, for our communities, and for our students so that they recognize those strengths? Because there are many of the strengths we need out in the, the world outside of school. And so yep. we want to be investing in them and we want students to be developing them. Yeah. You know, two, two things come to mind again, this is kind of how I do this. <laughs> things come to my mind and I just blurt them out. So I had a conversation. One is uh, a lot of the things that you said are very similar to a recent podcast episode we did with Joe Napolitano. Are you familiar with her work? Yeah. She, I mean, you know, she wrote the book, the, um, the school I deserve and, a lot about the kind of court cases and the civil rights and the idea, but also about the idea that these students are driven and they need to be um, put in a situation where they can prosper um, academically and language should not be a barrier. And the second one is a lot more lighthearted. And you've probably seen this. And I bet I've, I don't think I've lived, I think I've lived in a cave for a long time, but I recently saw, I just pulled it up. I, I try to play it, but I don't know if the audio will come through, but you can very easily Google it. Um, it's Sofia Vergara from uh, Modern Family, and and she says she says, do you know how frustrating it is to have to translate everything in my head before I say it? Do you even know how smart I am in Spanish? And I don't know if you've seen that, but it was used recently at a conference I was at, and it was very lighthearted and kind of silly, but it really makes you think. Like that's kind of what's happening in the minds of a lot of these students, right? Like they don't know how smart I am, right? And my and and it the the of course we know, right? That language has nothing to do with intelligence and your ability to express the content and the experiences that you have. But I just thought that was a really kind of nice, lighthearted way to, um, I'll link to it in this just for people folks to check it out because it's a quick little 20 second blurb that is kind of worth looking at. And then, like I said, the, a lot of what you're talking about, um, you know, a lot of people are doing great work, um, in this, in this field. And I think, um, you're one of them and I, I'm glad that it's happening because it's really, really important. Um, and, and kind of transitioning in my next question, one of the things I like about the way that you're doing this um, is it's it's you're a great storyteller in the book. I really think that aspect is um, 
is 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 great and i i think i'm not gonna say it's missing but it, it, it you don't come across it as often as i think i would like and that just could be my own style of reading i have a hard time with the highfalutin academic stuff um despite having two master's degrees and being a teacher for a long time i don't know how i got through all that um but you you talk about the experiences of many of your own students um who helped you understand their experiences kind of shaped who they are and what they aspire to do um it it makes for again for a great reading experiences but it's also a critical component of empathy and understanding right um, what can readers learn from these stories and how can they learn more about the experiences of their own students? That sounds like a simple question, but it's not like in my own experience, it's, it's not, you have a lot to get through. You have content and everything else where do you fit it in. How do you do it? You know, is it an informal thing? Do you co-create it? How does that work? Yeah. Um, I mean, so uh, I'm so glad that the story spoke to you, and I really uh, appreciate your your comments and your words about the book. Um, I think for me, it, it really is. It's these are stories about people, um, and that's what it boils down to. And they're really powerful, and for me, very inspiring stories about people. And um, for me, the heart of the book, because I'm a teacher, and these are my students, are those seven stories of my students um, who just so so generously shared uh, their stories so that. I and everyone who reads the book can learn from them. Um, so I think to answer the second part of your question first of how do, um, how do we learn from our own students um, is A, asking and creating space um, for students to share stories. Um, and I think about that when we do projects, say like the cookbook, or we do a, a number of other projects where students have opportunity to share parts of their story. I think about it in terms of opening doors, but not requiring anyone to walk through those doors. Um, many of our students come mm -hmm. with um, uh, with trauma, with hard stories that they maybe are not ready to share, maybe don't want to share, um, and that's totally fine. Um, but it's creating those spaces that if students want to share um, or want to share a part of a story, um, that there are opportunities for us to um, listen and to learn from them. And that could be as simple as, I, I learned this from a really wonderful uh, teacher in North Carolina, Emily Francis, who's an amazing uh, EL educator. Friend of ours as well. She's been on the podcast and she's going to come chat with us at our impact conference. She's great. She's amazing. Oh, fantastic. She's fantastic. Um, I so, so respect um, and just uh, love her work um, and have learned so much from her. So um, from her getting the idea of um, asking students about names, um, tell me a story about your name. Um, and that can be taken in so many different ways. Um, and then we build on it with stories like the ones that students share in the cookbook, or we write poems in connection to poems we study by immigrants uh, who traveled through Angel Island 100 years ago. And my students write versions of those poems about their own journeys. Um, there are just so many different ways throughout the year that we're creating space for students to share stories. Um, but they also, they can take that any way they want. And I see students take that many different ways. Um, and all of those are okay, depending on how people, uh, how my students want to share what they want to share. Um, so I think for others, it's creating those spaces um, to learn from our students. Um, and then 
a, a lot of that's too is shared in those in-between spaces of school. And I think all teachers know this, particularly EL teachers of uh, the before school and after school and lunchtime where those quiet conversations happen where you really get to know students. Mm -hmm. um, you asked too about a, a few of my students and the stories that they can learn. So I'll just briefly tell you a few of, of my remarkable student stories, just snippets of them. Um, I mean, there's the story of my uh, just uh, amazing student, Safiya, who uh, grew up in Iraq and had to flee with her family um, after her family was targeted by terrorists um, for um, her family's uh, connection and support of the U.S. government um, and the U.S. Army. And so her family fled to Turkey and spent a number of years in Turkey. And then part of her family was able to um, be resettled uh, in the U.S. as refugees. Um, part of her family is still spread across the globe. Um, and watching her first, A, come into her own um, and come into our confidence, um, starting out as a, a quiet student in the back corner of my uh, US history classroom, she was a junior, and then seeing her blossom uh, and find her voice, one of the, the eight essential elements, as a leader in our action civics work. And I talked a little bit about our action civics work uh, at the beginning of our conversation. Mm -hmm. um, each year in the spring, we as a class choose one issue that our class cares about and they try to create community change on it. And they work with politicians and community organizers on it. And uh, their class chose to uh, address um, community and school safety. It was coming right after the um, shooting at Parkland. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a personal thing for Sophia because Sophia's school was attacked um, by terrorists when she was little in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. And just watching her become a leader and pull together classmates and then friends because that's what happened um, in those spaces of collaboration uh, from Japan and Spain and the Dominican Republic and the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Zambia and all of them working together to write letters to legislators and to meet with representatives and to draft memos and seeing her just quietly become this leader, this sort of gravitational force that circled around her, that pulled everyone together um, and seeing how much she cared about and was invested in creating positive change for her community. Right. Um, and that transformation um, over the, the two years I taught her. There are, I mean, students like Srey Nith, who is the daughter of Cambodian genocide survivors, um, who really decided she wanted to learn coding and couldn't get into the coding class at school. So then went and taught herself coding um, and comes in during my lunch. So these are those quiet, um, like in between moments and is showing me her first coding games that she's created mm -hmm. and then blows through all the coding classes in our school. She wants to be an entrepreneur. She's in college right now uh, studying business um, and watching her both excel in the sciences and the maths um, in our school and loving coding, but also hearing from her, her experience of being in EL classes and how she had been taught by other students that it was somehow lesser than. Mm. Of course it isn't lesser than, but that was what she got the impression it was. And so early on her wanting to get out of Yale classes. Cause she's like, well, but I want to go to college. I want to be successful. And 
other students are telling me if I stay here, I won't be. Um, and so I think just a reminder too, and the lessons I'm learning from my students of how they are in taking um, our, our schools and um, getting messages that we are unconsciously being presented sure. with them. And how do we change that? How do we ask our students so that we can change how our schools are created so that that is not the message being given, um, that they're seeing their strengths. It comes back to seeing all the strengths because she is thriving and mm -hmm. um, Yale classes are amazing and supportive. Um, and so how do we learn from our students? And I mean, there's, and I mentioned him briefly earlier, uh, Robert, who is just an amazing human being who um, grew up in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, was orphaned um, when his parents were murdered through ethnic violence when he was little, escaped to Uganda, went to school for the first time uh, as a 12-year-old, mm -hmm. um, spent a number of years in a Ugandan refugee camp and came here um, as a 17-year-old and was put in um, high school and uh, talks about his loneliness and his struggles in his first year, but then also seeing him thrive. Um, I mean, by his senior year, he was getting all A's and uh, he was also a certified nursing aide working 40 hours a week. Right. Um, this is a kid who knows 10 languages, who um, works just so just immensely hard and is an amazing human being. And so uh, for me, too, which is what I drew from my students is their courage, their determination, their grit, their bravery. Um, and there, there's so many more students in there. And the stories, I think, are powerful. But I think we just have so much to learn from our students of how they understand our schools um, and how we can change our schools um, based on how they understand them, how they experience them. And also how do we tap into all of their many, many strengths coming back to our discussion earlier? Yeah. And this, you know, the stories that you have just told will not be unfamiliar to the people listening to this, most of whom are teaching students like the ones that you described. And I think um, you know, one thing that you said at the very beginning uh, of this was um, I, well, that that I've never heard before and that I really liked. Um, and that was, uh, you know, don't be afraid to open a door, but but also don't require somebody to come in. I really like that kind of I could have the image in my mind of what that means. And, you know, oftentimes um, it's kind of all or nothing. Right. Like we either say nothing or we say something and expect there to be an immediate um answer or conversation about things that can be really, really, really hard, but just opening that door, um, lets students know that, that we care, which I think is, um, great. And toward the end, you started to talk a little bit about, um, like you're telling stories about students and then you were kind of inching toward this idea of what, how do we zoom out? Like what are, um, what are some things that are working elsewhere? You mentioned that you had the opportunity to travel around, I think people have a lot of people have the opportunity to do that and research, but I think what makes you different is that you did it like you were teaching and then all of a sudden you were on the road traveling around to freshen your mind. It's not like you're, you know, a researcher who's been kind of uh, out of the classroom for a while. So your perspective is really interesting. So my question here is, you know, you, you write about these um, therapy gardens, competency-based learning, relationship building. These are like big uh, themes, some of them physical structures, some of them concepts that we've talked about in education for a long time. Could you give us an example of one or two programs that you 
observe that were particularly innovative and or effective and or relatively easy to implement for folks who are listening and thinking about what they can do to help support these students in a wider way? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you're totally right that it it is an odd thing for a teacher to be able to go travel and learn from others. And I mean, it's a great thing. I mean, yeah, it's odd, but it's, 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 unfortunately it's odd. It should be something that happens more often. I think whether or not you're about to write a book, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I think too often teaching is isolating um, and you rarely have an opportunity to learn from and sit in the classrooms of your colleagues in your own school or your own district, let alone across the state. And so setting aside just me researching the book, just me as a teacher having this opportunity to sit in the classrooms of others uh, in schools in Colorado, to Maryland, to Georgia. I mean, it was so exhilarating. I bet. Um, so I'm both taking notes for the book when I'm in all these classrooms and also taking notes for my own classroom being like, of course, that idea. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, let me do that. Um, and so there are just so many innovative, exciting, interesting ideas happening across the country. And that's really what I came with. And two, that those innovative, interesting, exciting ideas are not often known about outside mm -hmm. of the community. And so what I'd like to do is try to help connect people together um, to be able to share best practice, to also collaborate on challenges together. Um, so the book both dives into some of these stories in depth in the, the seven schools that are profiled. Um, and then also at the end too, in chapter eight, lays out a series of ideas on policy and practice, specific policy and practice drawn from all the stories in the book. Um, that's really a, a version 1.0 of a guide for teachers, at community organizers, and policymakers. Mm -hmm. um, that like literally in my mind, it was almost like you could cut these out of the book and take these with you. Yeah. Um, hope they're seen that way. And it's 1.0 because I hope too people will help write version 2.0 and 3 and 4 and 5. That Again, is the co-creation piece. Yep. Exactly. So um, a few of them that are exciting um, to me is you mentioned the therapy gardens. So I'll just share a little bit about that. There is a really powerful program in Houston, um, Las Americas, which is a school for kids who are new to the country in the last year. And one of the things of the many things I found really powerful there is this trauma therapy garden that they have. Um, and it was started um, by a powerful uh, event and really experience of a student. Um, so there was this little boy who was unable to learn in the classroom. Um, he was recently traveled to the US with his mother. It had been a very traumatic crossing and he was deeply, deeply and devastatingly missing his little baby brother who was still back home in his home country with his grandparents um, because his brother was his responsibility. And he, he refused to learn, he refused to be in the classroom. He didn't wanna be here, he wanted to be back home. And one of his teachers um, finally, after discarding so many different strategies and approaches, uh, finally found success in asking him to be the caterpillar manager for the classroom. Will you come in and take care of the caterpillars and clean up their poop and make sure they've eaten enough food? And that got him in the classroom for a couple of days and then maybe a couple hours and then whole day, a couple, a couple minutes, a couple of days, a couple mm -hmm. of um, and from that idea of this little boy who became the classroom caterpillar manager, 
the idea of the garden was born. And it's this garden that's outside. I mean, it's Houston. It's not up in Boston where things freeze. Um, sure. It's uh, this garden that has plants, um, a lot of sensory plants, so plants with a lot of smells from all over the world that our students will recognize. Um, and that is a space where teachers or social worker can bring students if they're having a hard day um, or if they're feeling sad or upset or missing someone back home. And maybe they're just going to garden. Again, there is this element of doors here. Um, this could just be a space to garden and to recenter. There's mm -hmm. deeply social emotional learning here, but it could also be a space that allows for conversation so that when you're transplanting that bulgenvillea plant, maybe you start talking about how it's really hard to transplant this plant and it maybe needs some extra water and some extra love and care as it moves to its new home. And that gets to discussions about migration. Maybe you talk about harvesting tomatoes as you're picking these tomatoes and grandma picked these back home and we talk about grandma who we're missing. Right. So it opens doors for conversations. And I thought this was such a powerful, beautiful um, way of helping to support students who have trauma, either from experiences back home or experiences they've had in their migrations here. Um, I mean, I, from that, I was talking about how I take notes for the book and notes for my classroom. I now have a, a small garden in my classroom that's filled with herbs. And it's in the corner, it's, we call it the calm corner. And it's a space for similarly students to go and sit and smell plants that they might recognize and just be in a calmer space if they need it. And kids can self-advocate and go there. Um, and those are ideas I pulled directly from Las Americas. At a larger scale, I was really inspired too by what's happening in Guilford, North Carolina, where this is a district of 126 schools. Some schools are all newcomers. Some schools have five uh, students who are ELs. And the district was doing okay by its ELs, but its EL district leader, Myra Hayes, was not satisfied. And she was at a conference. And so again, this opportunity to learn from others and heard about this idea to really tackle complex language. And for so long, um, the district's approach had been really more around simplified language. Mm -hmm. uh, first, let's get simplified language, then they'll build up. But here was a way of having students, even students who were in the country for a couple months, uh, work on really complex language. And how do you dissect that complex language and move it around these juicy sentences? Um, and she took that idea back to the district and then set about implementing that across the district, across 126 schools. And that meant holding professional development as groups. That meant going one-on-one -on -one to schools with her team and co-teaching or leading a lesson so that that teacher could watch. If you needed resources, her team was going to help you find resources. Mm -hmm. Team was traveling around the schools, taking pictures of what success looked like and sharing it to everyone else. And what was really exciting was both how they were re-envisioning instruction um, to think about really complex, interesting language that students could tackle really complex, interesting, hard language with supports. Um, and so setting expectations really high. And then also, how do you do that at scale with support? Um, that what are the ways which leadership in a district and in a community can support teachers and just be there in the, the big moments and the small moments to mm -hmm. make happen? 
And then they've seen dramatic results. Their test scores have shot up in reading and writing and, uh, and uh, science and math. And it's so, so powerful, but it would not happen without that entire team. Um, right. Together. Right. Yeah. Working together. I mean, in both situations, the, the physical kind of garden situation, people learning from one another and kind of figuring out what the student needs and taking a shot at something and then others learning and, and scaling it. And then with the other piece, you know, that team approach, I think is, is crucially important. Um, and that kind of like, so, so when we think about, there's a lot of talk, right? There always has been a lot of talk, um, but more so now about reimagining education, right? Like this whole idea that the pandemic, um, was really terrible, obviously in a lot of ways and caused a lot of disruption, but disruption often leads to change. And so there is still, I think, I hope an appetite to do some good things and learn from it. My question then is, what are some of the ways, the stories that you have told and the um, successes that you have seen, how can those help us reimagine education, not only for multilingual learners, but for all students? Because we often say quite frequently that good instruction for multilingual learners is good instruction for all students. Um, and so I'm curious about that. And that's kind of how I'd like to kind of kind of wrap up here, because I think if we can, if we can take that, what we've talked about multilingual learners and expand it out, we have now a wider audience and perhaps a bigger hook. Yeah, no, and I, I think you're right. I mean, ultimately, those, those eight essential elements of belonging are, I think, powerful ideas that, for many of our students, all our students. And if we come back to that idea of belonging, I mean, a sense of belonging is something every child and every person craves. We all want to feel welcome. We all want to feel accepted. We all want to feel valued by our community. And for young people, that sense of belonging is going to provide a foundation for them to build a life and pursue their dreams. And if you have that sense of belonging, then you're invested to bring your talents and your energy and your heart into community and strengthening your community. And that's true for my immigrant students and that's true for our students who've been here for generations. Um, and so how do we create classrooms that nurture a sense of belonging for all of our students? And I mean, I think there are so many lessons and stories in the book from all the people who I talked to who shared their stories that help us think about how we get to that. But I'll give you two as we close. One is thinking about the, the strengths in our community that are there that we're not tapping. We've talked a lot about strengths over the last hour. And so, for example, there is a school system, a, a group of five schools in Aurora, Colorado, the Action Zone. And they have created a community school approach where they are seeing schools not as uh, a place just for academics that's open from, say, eight to three, because often schools are that, and then there are these big buildings that are shut for much mm -hmm. of the day. They are open from sunrise to sunset, and they are vibrant community hubs. And they are seeing that their students, of course, are members of the community. And so how do we bring in hospitals? And how do we bring in nonprofits and businesses and families? And how do we all work together and collaborate together? And all of that is going to translate into more success for our students. Mm -hmm. And so I think one is, how do we tap the strengths of our communities yep. to yep. better support our schools? How do we create a community school approach like they're doing in uh, the Aurora Action Zone? 
Um, and two, and this is sort of part of it, is I think something that struck me throughout the stories of the past, the present, and the personal is that there is a role for everyone um, in the work of reimagining immigrant education or reimagining education more broadly. Um, that I think often we think about what is the role for teachers and uh, educators, but I mean, I look at the stories, particularly of the past, and I look at the lawyers who were involved in creating change. I look at the um, the members of religious faiths. There's a nun in uh, 1960s in Boston who had a, a tremendous impact on affecting laws across the country mm -hmm. um, that made for more inclusive schools. Uh, I think about the parents who are at the center of um, work um, that has made schools more welcoming, more inclusive. And so I think the, I mean, President Lyndon B. Johnson was transformative for our schools in creating the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Um, there is a role for everyone in our community to play in thinking about our schools. And that's one of the things that I take away. Um, and that there are amazing, with that amazing strengths in our community that if we're gonna tap them and bring them together, it's gonna help all students. But ultimately it's about creating that sense of belonging for our students so that they see, feel safe, they feel seen, they are valued for their strengths, their voices are listened to, they have advocates in their community and their schools. Um, and if we can do that, then I think our students will thrive. Yeah, kind of back to the beginning, right? That sense of belonging, that's so, so important. And uh, luckily it is an issue that is getting a fair amount of um, of kind of the spotlight right now, which I think is really, really important. Um, okay, so- Collaboration yeah. um, is, can we get more people collaborating together, more educators collaborating, re uh, researchers, researchers uh, policymakers, community organizers, learning from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, we need a lot more of that. We need people coming together, sharing best practices, collaborating on challenges. And so I'm excited about doing that. If anyone listening wants to collaborate, let me know um, because we need more people sharing ideas together. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that hundred percent. That's one of the main reasons why we do this. Um, and so as we wrap up, Jessica, I want to ask you two more questions and they're questions I ask everyone. The first one is, uh, we've talked about your book. I highly recommend it. Making Americans stories of historic struggles, new ideas, and inspiration in immigrant education. We'll link to it so folks can get it if they want it. Um, so you spent a lot of time on that book. So it's hard for me to ask you this question, but is there another book out there that's kind of had uh, a, a really influence you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with the audience? I, so many powerful books that I have read um, that I, I read for this project, um, I think also um, of resources too, in addition to books. And so it's sure. not necessarily a book, but I'll give you two resources that I really, really love and have been tremendously impactful for me. One is the organization Facing History and Ourselves. Yeah, I know um, they, I mean, I, as a seventh grader, um, studied Facing History's curriculum for a year. And they have a really powerful um, series of lessons and curriculums around facing a hard history. Um, I use those in my classroom. And that thinking, I think, has really influenced how I approached uh, writing this book. Right. The other organization, I would say, um, and actually, I just heard last night that they're writing a book, which I'm really excited about, is Reimagining Migration. Um, yep. 
which is uh, just another amazing nonprofit that is doing work to center the study of migration in our schools, to provide lesson plans that look at our history and our present day for students to provide really rich professional development, um, and also to, to conduct studies with universities to think about how we better support our immigrant origin students, how do we transform our schools, and I think both are just doing very, very important, powerful work. Um, so if you don't know about those, I would check both of them out. Um, they have been both uh, really powerful for me as a teacher, as a thinker, as a learner, and as I set out to write this book. Totally agree. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is I, to my recollection, and we've done over 200 of these, so I could be misremembering, but I don't think anybody's mentioned those, including me, those two organizations, and they are both phenomenal. So I'm glad that you mentioned both of them. And there's no rule that you have to mention a book. And we have already talked a lot about a book. So I think that's uh, fairly appropriate. But I'll right. call it Emily Francis's book. Um, I know you're having her on soon. And I, yeah. just, it came out just this, spring, uh, this uh, fall. And it's about her her own powerful journey and also just the lessons she's sharing with her students. And that was such a, a joy and powerful, powerful read. So if you haven't read her new book, please go read it. Um, it was wonderful. And really yep. Good. And I'll be, we'll be talking more about that with her and another episode. So stay tuned for that. But I'm glad you mentioned that book because that's also phenomenal. Um, all right. So last question, Jessica, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing? Um, so I, one, you'll learn a lot through the book. Um, I hope you'll get a copy. Um, so a lot of what I do in my classroom with my students, um, is shared there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Jessica underscore Lander, um, on my website, uh, jessicalander.com. And then on that website, you can also sign up for a newsletter. I'm sharing stories from my classroom, um, this year. And those are different ways to, to connect with me. And as I said a little bit earlier, um, I'm just really excited to be collaborating with educators, thinkers, researchers, policymakers about reimagining immigrant education. And so if you're interested in doing this work and want to reach out, I would love to hear from you um, to think about ways that we can collaborate together and connect um, just the so many, many people in this country who are doing powerful, important work. Um, and how do we elevate that work? Amazing. Great. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed the book. I would highly recommend it. And thank you for all of the great work that you're doing, not only um, in writing the book, but also um, on a day-to-day -day basis with all the students that you're clearly um, having a wonderful impact on. So thank you so much. And thank you for joining us as well. I just really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me on. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book and uh, just excited to have talked to you this hour. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.